Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. Thank you for joining us. Coming up this week on Special Edition, it has been a very big start to the campaign season with the Democratic National Convention just wrapping up and the Republican National Convention getting its start on Monday. Intercom's Nancy Kamen caught up with Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania and will get his views on some of the things that have been happening. Also, a suggestion from one of our special edition listeners. Last week, we aired a program that was recorded by Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale about libraries across the Commonwealth. Well, the Auditor General has been doing interviews with various groups across the Commonwealth and how they're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. He spoke this past week with Janetta Green. She's the CEO of the Center for Independent Living of Central Pennsylvania. One of our special edition listeners happened to catch that interview on his Facebook page and suggested we might want to share that with everyone. We'll be doing that as well this week. But we're going to start off with another one of our longtime favorites here on Special Edition, and that is Dr. David Palmiter. And of course, speaking of COVID-19 and all the different changes that have been happening, a lot of people are under stress. So Intercom's Nancy Kamen got a hold of Dr. Palmiter and asked him some questions about what we can do. I think feelings uh, that are out there right now with people and that is uncertainty and uncertainty and anxiety and stress. A lot of uh, different things going on. And I thought it would be a good time to check in with Dr. David Palmiter. He's a psychologist. He's a professor. And Dr. David Palmiter also, uh, you can find more information at helpingfamilies.com. Dr. Palmiter, always good to have you with us. Yeah, me too, Nancy. Thanks for having me on again. Now, you had sent me uh, some numbers yesterday um, that you got from, I believe it was the census where they talked to people. I was also talking about uh, the CDC numbers that are out where 40% of Americans are struggling uh, with mental health issues. Um, so this is something that is not uh, just a, a small percentage of people. There are, there's a real struggle going on right now with all this happening. Yeah, the Census Bureau sample size is over 225 million Americans, so it's pretty authoritative. And they find in the most recent edition, which was uh, concluded July 21st, 
that 25% of people report feeling depressed at least half the time. And, and over half, 57% report feeling depressed several days a week or more. With anxiety, 69% report feeling that significantly several days a week and over a third more than half the time. And those numbers are even higher for the groups of, of young people like 18 to 29. So yes, it's now become normative to have uh, significant experiences of depression and anxiety. Yeah, so when we talk about young people uh, and we're seeing some of them being able to go back to school or, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the air about that. Um, let's let's just talk about them, first of all, the the younger people. What, what, is, the, what is it that they're dealing with? Uh, is it the disruption of the normal routine, uh, lack of social interaction? Well, the thing about this pandemic that strikes at the heart is that more than anything else, we humans need social connection. I mean, that's the best predictor of medical health late in life is the quality of social connection at age 50. That more than any medical, traditional medical measurement, our quality of social connection best predicts our health and longevity and so many other mental health variables. So this pandemic cuts at the core of that. And, and for all of us across the spectrum of age have to deal with more social disconnection. Even when we're clever and creative about trying to do it in a way that's respectful of social distancing. I think for younger people then too, or at least the social thing is what they tell me by far. And then the other thing is just, you know, some of the thing you inferred, the, the wanting to get back to the rituals that they know and are comfortable with and a life that feels more balanced than the one where they're home all the time. Right. Now, a, a lot of times um, when something happens and people have anxiety, stress, or, or start to feel some depression, there's like a trigger, you know, event. It could be a loss of a spouse. It could be, you know, someone's illness. It could be a loss of a job. In some cases here, though, we're talking about a number of things that people are dealing with. They may feel uncertainty in their job. They may feel, um, you know, now they have to worry about their kids if they're not going to be in school and they're going to be helping to, you know, take care of them at home. I mean, we're talking about more than just uh, one kind of stressor on uh, a number of people. You know, you answer your common cuts at a core issue. <clears throat> in our country, we conflate adaptive pain with neurotic pain. So neurotic pain would be if I imagine that nobody likes me, for instance, and I'm depressed. But this is adaptive pain. I mean, we all need to be doing some grieving. And if we're all out there, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling grief, so let me just go and exercise more, or let me just go and eat more, and those things are good activities. But if I don't take the time to tune into my grieving, my loss, it's like painting over rust. So how so would they do that? How, how do you do that? How do you take time with it? What I do is I'm applying schedule time. I do it myself also. Um, <clears throat> and, and try to pull to mind what, I, what my losses are, what my feelings are, and to be empathic with myself about it. So and, and only you're saying that. you actually face uh, you know, what it is because I see so many people online, and, and, and I do it myself, where we immerse ourselves in some other task, whether it's you know, remodeling something at the house or, like you said, uh, taking extra long walks. Uh, you're saying all that's fine, but that you still need to get to the core of what you're dealing with. To start with, 
Now, if I'm dealing with depression or anxiety and those feelings come up, those should be eviscerated quickly. And that's what, when we do cognitive behavioral therapy, that's what we do. But authentic experiences of grief can't be buried alive or they turn into zombies, zombified feelings, and they end up attacking us just like zombies in surprising and destructive ways. So we have to lean into the grief that we're feeling, create time for self-compassionate grieving. Let's talk about the kids because, um, as you're saying, a lot of them, any, and when I say kids, I don't just mean, um, you know, up to the age of 18. You're talking about, you know, your children that may be in college and such. Um, how is it as a family dynamic? How can the family work together? Uh, because I'm sure what they see their parents do can also affect how they handle this. Right. I think being able to do this. Um, self-compassionate grieving can be done in families to be open to talking to each other about our pain. We parents, we're crazy people. Our, our love makes us crazy regarding our kids. And sometimes when our kids start to talk about suffering, we want to quick jump in with the fix or quick jump in with the reassurance. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of that, where you're grieving something and somebody does that, you just want to create distance. You just want to get out of that moment. So the, I think the starting point there also with families is to share with that, with each other, those things. Then there's so, once you've done that, there's so many creative ideas. I mean, I have several on my YouTube page and my blog, ideas of ways of then building up, of having experiences of meaning and joy after we've done that hard work of grieving. I know that there have been a number of people I've talked to who say that, you know, it's been a struggle, it's been tough, but they have also been able to um, get find a closer bond with either their spouse or with their kids because of the shared time together. All pain is a dragon guarding treasure, right? Now, sometimes when the dragon's still doing its clawing, as COVID will continue to do until we have a vaccine, uh, it's hard to be aware of what that treasure is. But other times we can start getting some glimmers some sense for what treasures are there. And the treasure always equals and exceeds the suffering. So for instance, some cultural glimpses we're seeing, maybe we're becoming more attuned and responsive to um, racial inequities. Maybe we're becoming more attuned and responsive to mental health issues in our country, which has been a long, long standing area of deprivation and neglect. Yeah. Um, now, what can we do? Um, because in the very beginning, I think there was, um, and I've seen uh, studies that say that people were much more uh, about reaching out to, you know, distant family, to friends, to neighbors. Um, because we're seeing these numbers, uh, it, isn't it critical that we all, you know, reach out to loved ones and even just to our neighbors? Social, as much as we can reestablish social connection, we're not going to equal safely the pre-COVID connection, but as long as being creative and seeing that as an important to do task every week is critically important for us all. And there are lots of creative ways of maintaining some connection while also being medically safe. I've got, I've got three dozen of them on my hecticparents.com blog, for instance, listed there. Okay, so you have hecticparents.com and then you also have helpingfamilies.com. I want to make sure I get the information out. All right, the, the blog is Hectic Parents. The YouTube video is kidsandcouples.com. Okay, so... Helping links to the most things. But that's mostly for uh, my private practice and university lives. So what would you say, uh, now that we're going to be heading into, I think, you know, obviously with the, the summer ending and we're going to get into the, the 
winter and all that stuff, um, I, I'm just concerned that it gets, you know, we already get cabin fever, so to speak, um, you know, with those uh, time, that time of the year. Are you concerned about anything like that where you're going to be kind of stuck inside with these thoughts? Yeah. Some of my clients relate to the metaphor of, um, of like walking around in maple syrup. And I think even, you know, as a university professor, my colleagues and I, my friends and I who are professors, we all talk about how, you know, we're going into the semester, we so much want to serve our students, we so much want to be there for them, and at the same time, we've never felt so tired, you know, going into a semester because this has been such a, a siege. And I think that families are feeling the same thing. Today, in today's Washington Post, there's a national survey suggesting that working parents, 50% of them report that online schooling makes their job harder or impossible. Um, yeah. So we're all having a very challenging transition. We have to, um, I think, uh, in any situation like this, always have hope, right? There's hope that, um, you know, it, it, things seem rough, and especially when it's uncertain, you don't have an end date. Uh, in, in, but the, the reality is that as we get further along, uh, perhaps it's treatments or vaccine or something, uh, that we just got to hang in there uh, because uh, better days will be coming. That is a deep psychological truth, Nancy. And one of the things I do with my clients is I have them list the six worst things that have happened to them in the past, that they're over. And they give a pain rating for the past, a pain rating currently. And then I have them reflect, there's there any way now that your life is better because of that pain? Not that it's not that you would do it again or not that you would choose to experience it, but are there any ways? And then they rate the value of the betterment. It's so, so common for people to end up reporting, you know what? I hated that suffering, but man, did it make my life better in these other ways. Right, right. There may be a... a the, the, go ahead. So it, our suffering is a dragon guarding treasure. So you're right. The treasure will be there at America 2.0. It's just taken a while to get there. All right. And finally, just uh, it's. It, I know it's because so many people are experiencing it, it. It's not abnormal to feel, you know, down or feel, you know, a little anxiety here. How do you know, though, when it's something that you probably should uh, talk to someone else about, like a professional? When there's some important area of life that isn't getting accomplished, work, relationships, physical health. If one of those starts to, you know, I'm just, I have a couple of weeks now where I'm just not hitting the mark. I'm not sleeping. I, I can't get my job done. I'm, I'm chronically irritable with the people I love. That's time to seek out a therapist, many of whom offer virtual therapy and especially cognitive behavioral therapy, a very important term because that's the top evidence-based treatment for depression, anxiety, and stress. All right, so Dr. David Palmiter, thanks for being with us. Uh, let's just uh, mention again, you have helpingfamilies.com. You also have videos and a blog uh, if you want to just let us know where people can go to get some more uh, information and, and some helpful tips. Yeah, the videos are kidsandcouples.com, YouTube videos about COVID coping, and then uh, hecticparents.com is the blog. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm sure we'll be uh, chatting again soon and, and stay well. Anytime. And you too, Nancy. Alrighty, thank you. And Dr. David Palmiter, I'm just glad to talk with him. Thanks once again to Intercom's Nancy Kamen for bringing us her interview with Dr. David Palmiter to Special Edition. Don't forget, helpingfamilies.com and hecticparents.com. Now, when we come back, we're going to be hearing a recent Facebook Live chat that Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale had with Janetta Green. 
She is the CEO for the Center for Independent Living of Central Pennsylvania, and they will be talking about the challenges for people with disabilities, their families, and caregivers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. On last week's Special Edition program, I aired a recent Facebook chat that Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene De Pasquale had with the Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Library Association. He's been having these Facebook Live chats with different people across the Commonwealth to find out how they have been dealing in special circumstances during the COVID-19 pandemic. During this past week, I received an email from a special edition listener who said that they happened to tune in to the Auditor General's Facebook page earlier this week and thought that there was something that we should share with our listeners here in Northeast Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene De Pasquale again holding a live Facebook chat this time with Janetta Green. She's the CEO of the Center for Independent Living of Central Pennsylvania. They talked about challenges for people with disabilities, their families, and caregivers during this time of COVID-19. Our special edition listener thought that with so many people in our area having the same concerns, this would be of interest to them as well. And absolutely, I agree. So here's the interview from a Facebook Live chat, Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene De Pasquale and Janetta Green, CEO of the Center for Independent Living of Central Pennsylvania. Hi, Eugene De Pasquale here, Pennsylvania Auditor General, and thank you for joining us for our continued discussions, various aspects of Pennsylvania on the impact of COVID-19 and what these groups are doing to try to help manage this pandemic and also try to make sure that they're still continuing to provide the services for um, for their clients. So uh, honored to have Janetta Green with us. She's with the Center for Independent Living of Central Pennsylvania. Um, obviously, the impact on the disabled during this pandemic has has impacted um, the disabled community, just like it has uh, impacted so many other communities across Pennsylvania. We wanted to have Janetta on to talk about some of those impacts, and for anyone out there that may have a any type of challenge. Um, how they can work with uh, Center for Independent Living, whether it be in Central PA or anywhere across Pennsylvania, to try to make sure they're getting the services they need, or at least to know what some of the additional challenges are so the state can do um, our part to try to help mitigate those and try to make sure people are still having able to have as productive lives as possible as we all try to manage this in the best way we can. So, Janetta, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Why don't you take a couple seconds to introduce yourself and also tell people about the Center for Independent Living. Thank you, General. I appreciate that. Um, I am the CEO of the Center for Independent Living of Central Pennsylvania. We are located in Camp Hill, and we serve five counties with our core services in Central PA. Um, I have been at the Center for almost 31 years, and for the past year and a couple of months, I have been the CEO. As a Center for Independent Living, we are a grassroots organization. We're consumer-driven, a nonprofit, non-residential organization. 51% of our staff and our board are people with disabilities. So that's what makes Centers for Independent Living so unique is we are run 
by consumers, by people with disabilities who know what's the best services that they need for themselves. There are 16 centers for independent living in Pennsylvania. So we have every county covered for, with a center for independent living. We all serve all people with disabilities in all ages. And uh, we just want to thank the Auditor General's Office for the help that they provided us in the past with the Shared Ride Pilot Program that started many years ago. That I don't think it would be where it is right now if the Auditor General hadn't intervened. So on behalf of people with disabilities, thank you very much. No, it's, uh, thank you. I, I mean, it was, it's what we do, but thank you. Um, so uh, you talked about the, the ride program. Walk people through just a little bit of an outline of some of the services that are provided to the disabled community through your organization. Uh, through our organization, um, we, we are funded, there are some of the cells in Pennsylvania are funded through state programs and some are funded through federal program and we are one of the federal programs. So we are mandated to provide five core services to people with disabilities. And it's um, information and referral, peer counseling, nursing home transition and youth services, um, advocacy and systems advocacy, as well as individual advocacy and skills training. So we have people with disabilities on staff who have the personal experience of living with a disability, offering services and advice to people who are going through it right now. We have done through this pandemic so much advocacy that that has been the focus of most of the centers for independent living in the state. Now, obviously, we're, you know, everybody uh, in our society has had some additional challenge because of the pandemic. But if you're not part of the disabled community or you don't know someone that's part of it, you may not appreciate how an already challenging situation in society. And look, and I would tell you, I had a brother with muscular dystrophy. Like, we have made tremendous strides from certainly the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, you know, leaps and bounds, but so many more yet to do. I, and I tell people sometimes, you know, if you think your sidewalk is, is bumpy, try moving up and down it on a wheelchair. I mean, so it is, you know, uh, so there sometimes are the day-to-day -day challenges that most people, not through any, any uh, malicious maliciousness, they just don't realize day by day. What is some of the things that the pandemic has added as a challenge to the disabled community that people that aren't part of that community maybe wouldn't even think of or realize that we should as a society have a better understanding of? I think for sure the isolation that it has caused where people were able to go out and about in their community and associate with other folks and now people are afraid to go out. Right. Um, there is the lack of services in having personal assistant care right. into your home. Um, you know, there are transportation has always been an issue for people with disabilities, especially if you're in a rural area, the lack of transportation, but now with the pandemic transportation is, is pretty strict on when they're out and about and where they will take you. So people just can't go out and shop like they used to be able to do. Right. And that's right. Whether it be even a grocery store, or some other look, and every all these places are doing the best they can. I'm, I, I've seen. I, I mean, I, I have yet to see. And again, I'm sure there's an example out there, but I'm talking about, you know, in our region, the, the supermarkets and stuff like that. I believe they're all trying their best. Having said that, if you were in a wheelchair or or part of the disabled community. 
there is this added burden or added challenge is the best way to phrase it on, you know, when it comes to the distancing issue, the mask issue, and for people that don't wear the mask, you have people who already have an underlying health issue, how they are even more at risk during COVID in addition to the isolation. Can you talk about that a little bit, if you may, if you may? Well, I think what we've seen happen through the pandemic is we have all started using assistive technology more often than we used to be able to. So we're seeing that we can make changes as we need to, to reach out to people, whether they are individuals with disabilities or without disabilities, there are ways to do it. Right. Um, what we have seen within our organization is that there is a lack of direct care workers to go in and work within the home. And it's not, it's not so much that it's the fear of, of going out into somebody's home because the, the attendants that we work with have been wonderful. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, we haven't have not had any outbreaks in our organization, but I'm aware of other organizations that offer direct care workers to people with disabilities that have had outbreaks. We've had um, throughout our entire community people who are dying from COVID. And as you know, nursing homes has been the largest amount of people with disabilities dying. And it's like 60, like 68 to 70 percent people in nursing yeah. homes who have contracted COVID have died. That's a huge percentage. And as a Center for Independent Living, we have been working on, you know, getting people out of nursing homes, trying to find alternate uh, places that they can stay, like at least through um, quarantine period. And it's housing is just another issue as with transportation. There's not enough housing that's affordable, that's accessible. Um, yeah, I just don't know what more to say on that because it's, it's such a big, big issue. Well, I, I mean, I do appreciate the incredible, not only the incredible challenge, but the work that your center is doing on trying to help bridge that. What are some of the other groups you know, or organizations beyond the Center for Independent Living that maybe you collaborate with or just are out there that other, if, if someone in the disabled community is looking for some other service that where they could potentially be reaching out to? Well, I honestly think that Centers for Independent Living are the best place to start. Yeah, okay your one-stop shop um, because they're aware of what's available in their communities and what services are out there for people with disabilities and what services are accessible. Um, we have, uh, like throughout the state, some examples have been um, agencies who are working with food banks to get food out to people who need the food. So there's collaboration with food banks, with churches, you know, we have a really good collaboration in Perry County with Join Hands. Um, they basically will try to meet any need that comes up. So churches, neighbor, you know, it's just where can you get the help? I've, I think people are really, really reaching out to help each other. You can see neighbors who are reaching out, making sure everybody's okay. Family members, churches have stepped in. So I think... I think that the, the SILs are the best, best place to start to find out what's available in your community. So before we go to some of the questions from the audience, I want to ask if you could tell them what, what your website is and phone number and what's the best way to contact, whether it be SILs of Central Pennsylvania or across Pennsylvania. Um, our website is 
www.cilcp.org, which is Center for Independent Living, a central PA, abbreviated. Um, our phone number is 800-323-6060. And if you want to know what SILs are in your area, I would refer people to the State Independent Living Council, which yep. is PASILC.org, and you can find out there what SILs cover your counties. Great. Well, um, Janetta, the way this works is Gary uh, Miller is our faceless moderator, but he's the one that has uh, the ability to see the uh, questions coming through on our social media platform. So, Gary, turn it over to you. What questions are out there for Janetta and uh, myself? Thanks, General. Janetta, nice to speak with you today. You. Many, many of us have a friend or, or a family member with a disability. How can we safely support them during this time? Are there any special precautions that we should take? It would be the same precautions that you would take uh, with any other person or family member that you're dealing with, you know, washing the hands, uh, wearing the mask. Um, I would also ask that indiv individual themselves, what precautions do they want you to take? Right. They, they, they may not want to receive a visit not right now necessarily. Exactly. So be sure to reach out by phone or email or just find other ways to keep in touch. Caregivers, especially, uh, can experience a lot of stress under normal circumstances. How has the pandemic made this even more challenging for them? And do you have any advice for caregivers? Oh, caregivers. Talk to somebody if you need to talk to somebody. Talk to your supervisor if you're working for an agency. Um, trying to think what other advice I have for them going through the stress that they have is, is talking to each other as well. It's, right has been really stressful because we have seen in our area and I've heard from other agencies as well that there's a real need for direct care workers. We're going through a shortage right now where we're having a hard time finding people to work. So that puts added stress on the existing direct care workers because they're have to fill in, filling in on additional shifts. Um, the other thing is the pay rate. And that has something that we have been advocating for many years on is direct care workers are some of the lowest paid positions in healthcare and they're doing some of the best work out there. And, um, you know, nobody really wants to work for what you can pay when they can go to Target or Sheets and make a lot more money than what direct care workers are making in the community. In fact, that's an issue that the Auditor General pointed out in a special report recently that we're going to have a real problem as baby boomers age if we don't have more direct care workers available. Yeah, and yes, we have to do something, you know, to to show our appreciation and to show our direct care workers that they're worth it because they're, they're doing a hard job. And I've seen it first. I've seen it firsthand. It is in many instances, particularly when you're dealing with the disabled community, the direct care workers it is a physical, like it is, can be physically challenging to do that work. It is hard day by day labor. So Janetta, what was the situation during the pandemic for people who were seeking facility-based care? Were there waiting lists and is it safe yet for facilities to start accepting new residents? You know, I, I really don't know if they were not accepting new residents. I know that in the disability field, disability community, the wait for the testing like months and months after the pandemic was announced it took before there was testing in the nursing facilities 
and with their staff and their residents. Um, to, personally, I think that's something that should have happened a lot sooner than what it did. As far as people being accepted, I think they're still being accepted into facilities. I think the facilities have put in a process where testing happens before they come into the facility. Um, but as far, you know, as a Center for Independent Living, our goal is to let people know that there are options, that they do have rights, that they can live in the community. But if they are in a residential facility, they also have rights in the facility. So it's educating them on what their rights are and that there is an option that they can return to the home. It's just having the appropriate and enough of the home and community-based services available to them. Right, and that's part two of my question. Um, not everybody wants to necessarily receive care in a facility, and that's why we need home and community-based services. How can Pennsylvania strengthen those services? Ah, definitely, we always need more money in home <laughs> and community-based services. I think um, also um, is the quality, is oversight of the quality of services that people are getting. And you know that's why we have been so busy as Centers for Independent Living and advocating for services is sometimes the service is out there, um, but the individual doesn't know that it's available or how much of that service they can receive. And it's up to us to educate them and also educate government about what the needs are in the disability community. You feel that this situation proves that we need to strengthen home and community-based services because that's what the future uh, is? Absolutely. I think that the pandemic has showed us where some of our weaknesses are, and I think we need to learn from this. And we know people can live successfully in the community. We've been proving that for years and years. And often more cost-effectively as well for taxpayers. More cost-effectively, yes. Janetta, it's been great to speak with you today. Thanks for answering my questions. I'll hand it back to the Auditor General. Thank you so much, Gary, for uh, for letting us know the questions out there. Janetta, thank you um, so much for your time. Really appreciate your leadership and the leadership of so many um, from the centers all over Pennsylvania. Such a critical resource and um, asset for the disabled community of Pennsylvania. Anything you want to say before we uh, tune out here? Um, yes, actually, I got a text from one of my staff not too long ago to let people know if they feel that they are in um, a desperate situation and need help, there is a disaster hotline that people can call, and it's 1-800-626-4059. So I just want to put that out there. Hey, that's great, Janetta. Thank you so much again for your time, your leadership, and hopefully everyone in your family and and your staff is all safe and as healthy as possible. And uh, for everyone else out there, thank you for tuning in. Um, continue to be smart, be safe. Uh, remember, we're all in this together. And thank you so much and have a great, great week, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Thanks once again to the Pennsylvania Auditor General's Office for allowing us to share that interview with you. And if you come across something that you think would be interesting to folks here in northeastern Pennsylvania, well, by all means, let me know. You can send me an email, preynolds at intercom.com. That's preynolds at intercom, E-N-T-E-R-C-O-M dot com. Now, don't go away. We're gearing up for election next on Special Edition. 
President Trump stopped by this week. Joe Biden said yes to the Dems, and Senator Bob Casey is here. Hi, Senator Casey. Hey, Nancy, good to be with you. Thank you uh, for taking the time out. Uh, I know there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, let's talk a little about the post office. We were just discussing that, and there was a guy who was a metal uh, mail carrier for many, many years, uh, retired now. But um, what is going on with the Postal Service? Because um, it seems, depending on someone's political uh, you know, party, uh, either the mail is just fine or there are some real problems with getting stuff delivered on time. Well, there's no question that um, we're hearing from people like never before uh, with regard to slow, a slowdown in the mail. I mean, we, we've received, uh, uh, when, when, uh, when I just look, look at the most recent mail, 15,000 pieces of mail on this topic. And um, we're hearing from people that are not writing about some political theory or about some political position. They're saying like a woman in Adams County wrote to us, that's where Gettysburg is. She said, and I'm quoting her, I use mail order for my glaucoma eye drops, which have always been delivered within 24 hours as they need to be refrigerated until now. And the words until now are in capital letters. I have been without eye drops for four days now and counting. Then you hear from a veteran in Lebanon County. He said, um, he receives his prescription drugs by mail, quote, I've gone up to seven days waiting on delivery. Look, it's, it's, it's just a fact. It's been slowed down. And when you couple that slowdown with the changes that Mr. DeJoy uh, implemented without, without uh, doing any analysis or engaging with the workers on this, and then you, then you add to that President Trump telling the world that he believes mail-in voting is bad for him politically, so he doesn't want to fund the post office. When you put all that together, you can see why people are not just concerned about this, they're, they're angry. So I think the message to the president and his administration should be twofold. Stop messing with the people's post office and stop lying about mail-in voting. Yeah, I mean, he said it out loud. He basically told everybody yeah. exactly what's going on. He has been in office for uh, three and a half years. And right before the critical re-election uh, that he has, uh, all of a sudden he decides to put this other person in uh, who has had no previous experience with it and has some, uh, let's be honest, uh, there's a lot of uh, things there that would make you wonder why he would even be in that position. Um, it, it's it's outrageous. And, and one thing that people love is the Postal Service. It has one of the highest ratings uh, for people. I think it's like 90-some percent support it. It is something little, we depend on. Nancy, their approval rating is just a little bit higher than Congress, right? <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, that's one of those things we know you know, when to expect what comes in the mail. Right. And and I, I we, we've noticed it now for uh, months now, uh, changes in, in how much mail we're receiving, what time we're, mail, we're getting mail. There are days we don't get mail at all. And that is odd. Uh, so now he uh, supposedly, uh, Nancy Pelosi has said that she spoke with uh, Louis DeJoy. And even though he has, you know, the headlines were he's going to stop uh, doing what it is that, uh, you know, the changes that are being made. Changes have already been made. And it seems like he's not going to undo the mess that has been done. Yeah. And, and I think uh, most of us in, in the Congress, I think, were skeptical. And I, and I say us, I mean, people in both parties. Some probably wouldn't say it out loud. Um, but we were skeptical when he made that announcement the other day. And sure enough, when Speaker Pelosi talked to him, he's, he's, um, he's backtracking. And even when they made the announcement, he said he was, they weren't going to go forward with some of the changes. But, and they also weren't going to reverse the changes in effect. Here, here's what it means. You know, people hear a lot of numbers and they hear different things about the Postal Service. 
here's what it means in, in, in the mechanics, just one part of this. The, the Postal Service planned under Mr. DeJoy to remove 670 high-capacity mail sorting machines across the country. Now, that's 10% of its inventory. People say, well, what does 10% mean? Well, give you one example. In Philadelphia, seven or eight machines have already been removed, reducing its mail sorting capacity by over 300,000 pieces of mail per hour. That's what we're talking about here. You take out one mail sorting machine or two, but let alone 670, you're going to have an impact on the mail. And this isn't, even if this wasn't a voting issue, which it is, it's what I've called a five-alarm fire for democracy. But even if that wasn't even the case, let's say this is 2019. Right now, we're getting letters from, from people in Adams County and Lebanon County. We got a, a letter from a, a woman in Wayne County right near us. She said, uh, she's talking about her husband's workers' comp check getting to them five days later. She said it's, she described the Postal Service as a lifeline. So it's, 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 all, the, it's all the worse, of course, because it could slow down and affect a national election. But even if it wasn't an electoral issue, let's say the voting issue wasn't part of this, just to slow down in prescription medications and what veterans should get, there's no excuse for this. Mr. DeJoy should answer questions under oath, and he damn well better tell the truth and not commit perjury under oath. Uh, number one. Number two, he shouldn't even talk to the president. I know he was appointed by the president. That, that's troubling in and of itself. But he shouldn't be talking to the president. He shouldn't be taking orders from the president or anybody in the White House. He should tell them to go to hell. He should run the Postal Service the way it's supposed to be run so you have on-time delivery without question. And one of the things he could do to help the Postal Service and help all of us is advocate for the $25 billion that the House wants to give him. Why isn't he standing up on the rooftop saying, I need $25 billion because we've got tens of millions of ballots we got to get processed. The Postal Service needs more money. We should give them more money. Yeah. And the problem also is that uh, all this talk about and worry about the mail, uh, you wonder how many people out there may just say, well, I'm afraid to you know, do the mail-in ballot because of that. Um, do you think they'll be able to do anything to turn this thing around before Election Day? No, I think there's no question we can, but we've got a lot of work to do. And we've got to continue to remind people that mail-in balloting is the right thing to do for your health. In most instances, some people want to vote in person. That's fine. They can do that. They have that choice. But we, I think the best thing for people to do is get a mail-in ballot early, fill it out, get it back in as fast as you can. Because that will prevent, the, you know, a surge at the end. You can't have the post office dealing with like a Christmas week rush for you know seven or eight weeks in a row they just can't handle all that mm -hmm. so the bet we can all help them by getting our ballots in uh early so look the, the, i have no doubt that the postal service workers who are already have already been uh, uh, these letter carriers have already been heroic working in a pandemic going up and down the street uh putting themselves at risk they can get the job done if they have the resources and if some letter carriers have to stay home because of coronavirus you got to increase the overtime. What did what did DeJoy do? He was cutting the overtime. That is that is a a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's to cut overtime. I don't, I don't care if the over. I don't care what the overtime costs. If it's ten billion, we got to pay for it. If it's twenty five billion, that's what we should pay for. But we need more dollars into the postal service so they can do on time delivery of everything, including prescription drugs, and 
so we can get mail-in ballots in. Yeah. Well, the House is coming back to do a hearing. Uh, I'm wondering, though, uh, there's been yeah. some uh, push uh, for this whole vacation, you know, recess uh, thing to end because we got real people uh, suffering out there. And uh, the stimulus talks are kind of on hold anything. Uh, we can't even uh, get uh, something going here for the American people. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. Well, Nancy, the house, you, you point to something really important. The House has acted responsibly, uh, or will have acted by Saturday, responsibly twice in a row on big things. Number one, tw- about 12 weeks ago now, they passed the HEROES Act. The Senate sat on its hands. All we, all we did in May, June, and July in the Senate was vote on nominations. Almost, a, We did a few other things. It was, we did a defense bill. Okay, other than that, it was all nominations. Right, Instead right. of working on a bill. They didn't. They didn't see an urgency. Remember, was there not a quote? Yeah. Uh, they said we don't see an urgency right now to do this. Look, even if you're Mitch McConnell and you say we don't need a bill in May, we don't need a bill in June for unemployment or this or that or state and local government support. Uh, I've got a major piece of legislation which will get nursing home deaths down. We are certain we can get those deaths down if we put in place uh, best practices that you got to come up with money for. But even if you, if even if you agreed with that. Why wasn't Mitch McConnell and his caucus working on a bill, getting it ready, having it ready so that the minute the unemployment was about to run out, they could have a bill that we could debate? Mm -hmm. Why weren't they doing that? I don't understand it. Now we have both that crisis, the unemployment crisis. You know, unemployment in in Lackawanna, Luzerne County has never been higher in my lifetime. We've got the crisis of the virus itself, itself still raging. And there's nothing prepared, nothing ready to go. And now you have this postal service crisis. I think the Senate should go back into session. I should be called back into session to vote on not just the Postal Service, but, but uh, unemployment insurance, state and local government support. So okay, as simple as this, if we don't support state governments across the country, every school district is going to get a cut in their budget. It's as, it's as certain as night follows day. State governments have to balance their budgets. So all these things are happening, and House Democrats are passing legislation and Senate Republicans are sitting on their hands watching as uh, things get worse. Mm. Uh, quickly, just want to get your thoughts on the Democratic National Convention. It has been very, um, just not the usual because of, uh, obviously, COVID-19. Um, but yesterday, a former president, you know, Barack Obama, had some uh, pretty harsh uh, words uh, for the current president. What were your thoughts on what he had to say? Well, first of all, I agree with him because I think the point he was making is that uh, this president had an opportunity not just in the first couple of days of his administration, but now several years uh, to conduct himself like presidents should conduct themselves, not to demonize and divide, not to use uh, smear tactics, and not to lead the country in a direction where he had the United States military, just by way of one example, the United States military using tear gas on peaceful protesters for a political stunt. No president has done anything any anywhere approaching that. So I think the president was President Obama was making a point that President Trump has had a chance to to lead and he, he's chosen not to do it. And his failure to deal with this virus effectively has led to not just a, a worsening of the pandemic, but has led to the a worsening of the jobs crisis. Everyone knows the virus wasn't caused by the president, but he made it worse by denying it. By, by not having an action plan in place for testing. Look, he's coming to Lackawanna County today. Uh, if he's in Lackawanna County, I, I, I think he should do two things, which I'm certain he won't do. Instead of smearing Joe Biden, why not act like a president and say, I'm going to announce today, here's my detailed job creation plan. 
so we can get the unemployment rate down in Lackawanna County in northeastern Pennsylvania. Here's my here's my plan to tackle the virus. We still don't have a national strategy to deal with a worldwide pandemic. And, and people, I think, are waiting for that from a president. Yeah. Uh, finally, just uh, your thoughts on uh, our uh, Democratic nominee. Uh, we've got uh, a historic choice also for vice president. Uh, we've got uh, the Biden-Harris ticket. Well, I think it's a great, it's a great ticket. Of course, I know Joe Biden well, and I know Kamala Harris as well. Uh, I don't know her as long, of course, but, but I, I know her from serving in the Senate and campaigning with her. And I met her, I guess, for the first time but way back in 2012 when she was the state attorney general in, in California. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great team, and they're both, they're both committed to helping move the country forward. You can tell that because Joe Biden's got a Build Back Better economic plan. The president still does not have an economic and job creation plan uh, in the middle of the worst unemployment we've ever seen. But I don't think there's any question that, that Joe Biden has the experience and empathy, the decency and determination to lead our country at a time of crisis. And uh, I think he's going to win, but we got a lot of work to do. we got to get ballots in. we got to get people out. we got to get people out. And, uh, and because we know that Northeast Pennsylvania is critical uh, in this upcoming election, just like it was the last time around. U.S. Senator Bob Casey, thanks for being uh, with us. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. A production of Intercom Communications. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 